Intrepid Radio. This is Control. We are go for an on-air check. Control, Intrepid. We copy an on-air check. Intrepid, this is Control. You are go for Intrepid Radio. Cue music and cue talent. Intrepid, you are live in five, four, three, two, one. Intrepid Radio, you are live and the clock is running. are listening to Intrepid Radio, where we spotlight innovators defining the new rules of marketing, business, politics, and life. And now, here's your host, Todd Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Todd Schneck. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. My guest today does branding, advertising, product naming, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Insanely Simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. Welcome to the show, Ken Siegel. Good morning to you, Todd. Really a pleasure to talk with you, and I really am grateful for you making the time, so so thanks for joining us. Uh, Ken, before we begin, do please take a minute and share with us a little about you and your background. Well, uh, I've been in advertising for a very long time, although I have never really considered myself a great fan of advertising. Um, and I need to explain to people that uh, I realized at some point that I'm not really so much of an ad man as I am a guy who likes to write about cool stuff. Uh, I would, I've been boring people at parties for uh, a long time, <laughs> just talking about things that I think are cool, like iPhones and iPads and things like that, except I started doing this quite some time ago before those things existed. I did find myself uh, getting into, uh, when I got into advertising, I very quickly got into technology advertising, and I've really been doing that for a very long time. So I was involved with IBM, Compaq, I mean, all kinds of things, Microsoft a little bit. And then my uh, big break came when uh, I started, uh, a friend of mine I'd met in advertising in L.A. was the big kahuna on the Apple business at TBWA Shiat Day. Actually, at that time, I think it was just plain old Shiat Day. But he was uh, Steve Hayden, who was the guy who did the 1984 commercial and was uh, had masterminded the whole Macintosh launch. He was a very amazing writer. I still think he's the most amazing writer around, although he doesn't write anymore. He's more like a, uh, an agency leader kind of guy and, and was promoted beyond uh, the time where he actually sits down and, and writes. Uh, but he invited me to work on Apple when uh, John Scully was the CEO of Apple. So I did that for a few years and then moved to New York to work on BMW and Next Computers, and that was my big chance to work with Steve Jobs. And that turned out to be my the, the magic entry point for, for what really happened in my advertising life was hooking up with Steve Jobs. So I worked on Next for eight years with him, and then we uh, went our different ways for, uh, they stopped advertising, <laughs> they, they, the company changed that much, and it was the time when he was starting to sell to Apple when he, got back into Apple and then was actually named CEO, temporary CEO. It was a couple of years after my next time with Steve. We all got together again. I rejoined Shia Day to help them with, with the Apple business. So 
that was the beginning of my real adventure. Four and a half years working with Steve Jobs uh, from the time he came back from exile. So that was the Think Different time and the launching of iMac and all that fun stuff. And that basically brings us to today because since then, that time, I've, um, I've done a couple of other things like I was the chief creative at an agency for, that was handling Dell. I worked with Intel. Um, and then here I am. I'm a, an independent consultant, but I did live this adventure with Apple and, and noticed these things that I thought really um, cried out to be uh, told to the world in the form of a book. Yes, and that book, again, is uh, insanely simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. You know, Ken, in addition to your writing about cool stuff in this book and your work with, with Apple, certainly, and a bunch of other, other great things that you've done over your career, certainly Apple's Think Different campaign, in, including the, the ad that we all know and love, the, you know, the, the crazy ones, if you will. You know, Ken, I, I, was, I was thinking about it, that when we lost Steve Jobs, the tribute that many people put out there that was their way of honoring him was, in fact, <laughs> was that crazy one spot, you know, the, the here's to the crazy ones. Because that's always summed up uh, Steve and what he stood for in all of our minds. Uh, but there's, there's obviously a lot more to it than just this great ad and, and, and that whole Think Different campaign or the great company of Apple. There was simplicity behind it, and simplicity in the message, and its creation, and its purpose. Uh, and, and I think the idea behind that and communicating its power is, is why you had to write this book, yes? Yeah, I think so. And I, Even in those beginning days, we, well, we had a nice little convergence of people who believe in simplicity, because there was Steve Jobs on one side, and there was Lee Clow and Shiat Day on the other side, and we were all of the same mind, and we knew at the beginning that we needed to have some kind of brand campaign to just lay the foundation for the things that were going to be coming. And we had to believe, we had to put our faith in the idea that things were coming because Steve told us they were, but we had no real evidence of that. So what I always loved about the Think Different campaign, I mean, forgetting the crazy ones and all the other stuff, just, just the words Think Different, which I wish I could say I wrote, by the way, but were written by a guy named Craig Tanamoto, who was an art director on the team. They're just so perfect for Apple. Most people, a lot of companies, when they search for a theme line or think about launching a new brand campaign, they sort of sit down and ponder who it is that they really are and how to communicate that. Or they might say times have changed, times have changed and we want to be something different and more contemporary or whatever. There were none of those conversations in those beginning days with Steve Jobs because Everyone knew what Apple stood for. It may have become somewhat mediocre <laughs> um, over the 10 or 12 years that Steve was gone, but it still was a company that was founded on, on coming up with brilliant new solutions and interesting products. And what I loved about the, the final solution that we came up with there with Think Different was that you could literally have applied those words to Apple at any stage of its life from the time that it was Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in, in uh, Jobs' father's garage, you could have had the Think Different sign hanging there as they were creating the first personal computer. And it certainly is applicable to iPads and iPhones uh, uh, when those things were launched. So it really um, is authentic. That's, the, that's what I'm building to here, the, the idea of a, of a brand image that has authenticity to it. And that's somewhat of a rare thing in the advertising world. And 
Apple and Shia were able to come up with this idea that really captured the essence of Apple. Uh, and there's an interesting side story, if I could just babble for a little bit. Please, please. But Steve loved this commercial. I mean, he was very much involved in its creation. We'd go back and forth a lot on the words. And um, he wasn't being a, con a control freak or anything like that. He was just really into it. And he would have suggestions. And I'd come back with counter suggestions and things like that. And we finally sculpted this thing. But it was really clear that that he loved this. And if you, there's a thing on YouTube, uh, an old video of Steve introducing the campaign to an internal uh, gathering of marketing people at Apple. And he's very tired looking in this in this video because we had him up till three o'clock in the morning the night before approving the final, final version of it, going back and forth with what limited technology existed at the time. So he was up very, very late and he gave this great speech about this campaign that he loved so much. Um, and that was the Crazy Ones commercial that he was showing to, this, to these people. But anyway, in, in the, he would show that commercial at the start of Macworld. I think he did it for two or three years running. He, he thought that highly of it. And then 10 years later, I was at a Macworld and I was kind of stunned because I, I, at that time I wasn't actively involved with Apple anymore. And he started the show by showing the Crazy Ones commercial again. And I thought, wow, 10 years later, <laughs> he really did like that spot. And then comes the sad conclusion to this, which is that at Steve's memorial in Stanford, uh, that was a somewhat private memorial, but those of us who had been involved with him in certain capacity were, were there, and a lot of the Shiat people were there. And one by one, Steve's close friends and his family would get up and speak um, about, you know, about the man. It was a very... Uh, moving memorial. But at one point, Steve's 10-year-old daughter got up, and she wasn't a speaker, obviously, and she had, they had to come up with something for her. <laughs> but she got up uh, in a very cute way and said, I would, like to, I would like to recite one of Dad's favorite poems. And she then read the words to the Crazy Ones commercial. Wow. And all of us who had anything to do with that commercial were like, you know, it was hard to not be dabbing the tears from our eyes. It was we knew we had created something special with Steve's active participation. We knew that Steve actually belonged in the commercial, but of course we wouldn't have done that. But here it was being part of his memorial and, and spoken by his own daughter. So it was just too um, heart-wrenching. But my point really is that Steve really did love the spot and it, it captured the spirit of Apple that well. Yeah, it did. And, and I promised myself I wasn't going to take all your valuable time and talk about that commercial. But I, I do have to tell you that that when I do want to watch it, I, I find the version that, that he narrates and not Richard Dreyfuss. Just 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 so you know, <laughs> I think that's a I, I, I it means more to me when I hear uh, Steve Jobs recite it. Uh, huh. So anyway, that's an interesting point, because there's a story that goes with that as well. I'm going to keep you here all day, probably. Yeah, that That's OK. <laughs> but, at the very beginning, when we were thinking about who should read it, I was set up to go to the studio one day and record all these celebrity voiceovers. Uh, and we had some interesting choices. Sally Kellerman came in. She was one of our voices. And to be honest, in the end, she was the one I liked the most. Even though she was a bit overused at the time, she had a really melodic voice. And I just thought it really was interesting to have a female voice, and uh, I wish I could get a copy of that one, but that's in the archive somewhere. But we decided, um, actually Lee Cloud decided, it was more his idea, that Steve 
since he loves these words so much, he would read them with the appropriate passion and that he would be more believable as a voice than any actor we could hire. So we put that proposition out to Steve and he immediately rejected it because he said, I don't want to be a distraction. I think this message is really important and I don't want people off debating about whether I should do this or whether someone else should have done it and that it's my ego and all that kind of stuff that we would be hearing. So we actually talked him into doing it and he said he'd give it a try but he didn't like the idea. So I actually went up to Apple one day with a sound guy from the agency and we met Steve in the Apple auditorium. We were waiting for the appointed time and Steve came in somewhat rushed and he just said, look, I don't think this is a good idea. I really don't want to do this and I'm very busy right now so I'm just going to read it once and get out of here. Uh, so we were like, all right. Um, he wasn't in one of his charming moods. <laughs> uh -huh. so somehow we got him to read it like three times. Um, and then he said, I'm out of here, and he just left. So we thought, well, that was a quick trip. <laughs> we packed up and went back to the airport. And then I believe it was the next day that I recorded uh, these five other voices. So that night that we were all up till 3 a.m., that's actually one of the things that took so long is that we, we made a version with every one of these voices, and we said, um, we still think you should be the voice. Um, and then we had these other ones as backup. And Lee Clow, probably around 1 a.m., was doing his best to talk Steve into it, and he couldn't. And I remember he handed me the phone. He said, you try. <laughs> so, um, so I had to, to give Steve my impassioned plea about why he should be the guy. Although I will say that I didn't believe it as much as Lee did. I really did think that the world didn't know what Steve sounded like. Um, bottom line, they knew what he looked like, but the masses certainly weren't familiar with his voice. And they might just think it's a somewhat unprofessional voice doing this commercial. So I wasn't totally sold on it myself, but I understood the concept of him doing it. And I thought that was good. But anyway, I failed also. And Steve, <laughs> Steve just uh, says, there's only one voice on here that he and his wife had, had listened to. It. There's only one voice on here that, that's even close, and that's Richard Dreyfus. So, so much for, for Steve's voice, so much for Sally Kellerman's voice, and it was Richard Dreyfus who we also really liked. I mean, I, we wouldn't have shown anything that we didn't believe in. But it was interesting that how, you know, what, what we went through and how he, he rejected his own voice. But I will absolutely agree with you. I hadn't heard the version or seen the version with Steve doing the voice for like 14 years, whatever it was last year, when that became public. And it was interesting to me because I noticed on the YouTube video that it, it said it was actually posted two years before. Um, and no one really noticed it. It only had like a few hundred views or something like that. And then suddenly it's got like, I believe it's a couple of million views by now. I have to say, I, I felt exactly the same way you did. Not having heard it for a long time and partially because the man passed away, I, it gave me goosebumps. It, it was such a good read. It was a different read than Richard Dreyfuss. And it, you really did feel Steve's passion for the words. I mean, he really just, they sort of came from his soul. Uh, and maybe we're reading a lot into that because he's passed away, but um, it really makes you sad to hear his voice doing that commercial because, because he's been taken from us and because he believed in it so much and all those things rolled together. 
Well, it, it speaks to uh, when an actor reads a script and doesn't believe in it, you can tell. And, and when someone reads words that are true and resonate and, and you know are, are real, it does have that, it does have a different impact. So, hey, Ken, I, 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 I want to get into the book because um, I do a lot, of, a lot of writing here about sim- simple and simple business and living your life simple and all that. And that's obviously the, the key message in the book. Uh, Talk about why. Yeah, it's a Apple is a, is a great story of how a business applies the, the principles of simplicity to its core and everything about it. Uh, but, but why is this? Just talk about the actual concept of 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 being of, of the importance of simplicity for anyone anyone's business. Well, I think that Apple is this uh, fascinating thing for so many people. Whether you're an Apple user or not, the story of Apple is interesting, how they've come to go from uh, near bankruptcy, as Steve put it years later, that the company was 90 days from bankruptcy when he came back, and that just 14 years later, it would be the most valuable company on earth. Now, that is like a, a really amazing story. I don't think anything like that has ever happened in the history of business. So I think it's fascinating. It has a universal appeal. But I think when people think too hard about why Apple's success is so successful, they look at the products and think, well, people fall in love with these things and they sell billions of them. In truth, if you look at why people love Apple products, you'll see that it's because they're really easy to use. That's been one of the things way back from the beginning. That's always been in Steve's head. So uh, the point of my book really is that easy to use things like that, uh, that are like I mean, they're so ingrained in Apple's products that this whole philosophy, these things don't just appear by themselves. In fact, the whole company has this love of simplicity, and it's because they structure the company the way they do and the way they and because they communicate the way they do that they end up with these products that are so simple. And so I, I think a lot of companies who are out to compete with Apple say, well, let's just copy their products but they never quite achieve the same success because they're not really copying the company. And I think the company just has this built-in belief in simplicity that pervades every level of, of what they do. It was a sensibility that Steve had of just no matter what the topic was, it didn't have to be the, the devices themselves, it didn't have to be the advertising. I always just felt in all these meetings that Steve had, he just sort of had this filter in his head that he would always sort of hold things up to or is that simple enough, or are we making this too complicated, or however you put it when you look at a certain thing. And although I was very aware of that at the time, I will say that I didn't really think about writing the book until later experiences that I had with Intel and Dell, when I had sort of the opposite experience, when things got so complicated that even the ideas we started with that were so pure and and we thought great, that they would get watered down and pecked to death by all kinds of forces that no one could control because they were built into the company. And it struck me that, well, that's like a huge difference between Apple and these other companies. And Apple does so much better than these other companies. Why doesn't someone ever just say like, well, Apple's so successful, why don't we work more like that? When a lot of what they do is so very obvious. So I think that's the thing about simplicity. It's so obvious that you don't notice it all the time. That's why I wrote the book. I thought, well, why don't I just... If, if no one's really writing about it, no one's really talking about it, except every so often you see a little article somewhere that sort of touched on the topic of why don't I explore it a little further and talk about 
all the ways that Steve swatted down complexities as they would sprout and how he made everyone follow the simpler path. And that, that really is a lesson for any company in any industry or any organization is just don't let things get complicated and you will do a heck of a lot better. So that's the idea of the book. But can I want to explore this further? Why do we complicate things? I mean, what if you if you read your book, uh, or if you understand the power of simplicity, it's 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 almost it's almost obvious, and it, and it makes perfect sense. And yet, we still really really complicate things. And there's companies that are built uh, around the a, a core belief of, of of that's anything but simple. I mean, is it our culture? Is it our insecurities? Is it our education? I mean, what is it about us that, that wants to complicate everything? Well, funny you should mention that because um, I'm actually uh, about to embark upon book number two. Ah. And I haven't totally decided what, it, what the concept is yet, but that's actually one of them. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up. It, it would probably be fascinating to look at all the, the things that go wrong so that maybe it's a little more, more of a primer uh, of what to avoid, look for the danger signs, don't let this happen kind of a thing. But part of what I believe is that the, the simplicity and complexity have this back and forth thing and always have. I, I, the more I thought about it, I think there's probably this resting place in the middle that, you know how, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy in nature or something, but there's always like some point that things gravitate to and there must be some middle point that's somewhere between simple and complicated that is like a natural state of rest and people who pursue simplicity are of a certain philosophy and people will seem to always think that well this is smarter like if I put a lot more things in there that'll show I'm smarter and um, but they're actually making things more complicated because they're making it more difficult for people to understand their message. Part of the complexity thing isn't evil it's people really trying to, to do better and there's some really smart people who are, who are heading really smart companies in their effort to show how smart they are or to, to come up with new ways to be even more efficient, that they stifle the creativity or they make things more complicated along the way. And Intel is one of my favorite examples in the book because they're a company of engineers and they do hire marketing people, but the engineers are the ones who, who make the final decisions. And those are the guys who are obsessed with well, we can't just like put an ad on the air. We have to test it in like four countries and a few focus groups in each one and get a report made up and that'll tell us exactly where it's deficient and then we can fix it and then we can run it. And then after we run it, we should probably test it again because we can tweak it um, and we're going to make it really, really good. So their process takes like far longer than Apple's process and it actually costs a lot more money. Over at Apple, they just put the ads on the table and say, hey, this one's better than that one. Let's go with it. And we didn't really have to get directors approved or all that stuff. Steve thought, well, I'm hiring you guys. I'm paying you a lot of money. You're supposed to be good at what you do. So just this, this, this is the spot that I like, so go do it. And Apple's way was, like I say, cheaper and faster. And if you look at what they produced in the end, advertising-wise, uh, it's just infinitely better. <laughs> so, again, it's one of those things. It's widely publicized that Apple doesn't use focus groups. They don't do all those things. And, and it's also just kind of obvious by looking that Apple achieves better results in their marketing. So why don't smart people just look at that and say, you know what, why don't we blow up this whole testing operation and 
and streamline our processes so we save money and do better work. But for some reason, smart people think like it's smarter to work the other way. And I can't figure it out. Well, you know, it, if, you, if you allow yourself to think about it, you, market testing and doing focus groups, I mean, I guess it makes conceptual sense. Yeah, let's see how this message resonates. But, but I think when you, uh, and you obviously have a better sense of this than I, but if you, if you fall into that mode, then, then you're trying to please everyone. And that does, I think, adds a layer of complexity when you're trying to please. I think part of in part of the battle I fight as a marketing consultant is trying to is to try to narrow the audience that you're targeting and to, and to focus more on on a niche. I mean, and it speaks to what we were talking about earlier, where is Apple really was a company that thought different. Thus, they didn't need to. You either you either are like us or or you don't. And if you're not. We don't want you as a customer. It was almost kind of the the attitude it seemed. I think you're absolutely right with that one. As you've been consistently since this conversation started, <laughs> my compliments. But that's one of the things that, that a lot of people have a hard time accepting that Apple couldn't care less about them, their particular group, like you know people who like Androids or PCs, whatever. It's like you know Apple doesn't care what you think. <laughs> They're, you are not their customer, and they are going to do the best possible job for the kind of person who thinks this way. Um, and hopefully over time, more and more people will jump on the bandwagon. I think that's certainly the way they always thought about Macintosh, and um, iPhone was their first, well, iPod was their first moment in the mass market. But um, And you've got the famous halo effect where people are saying like, wow, this thing really is great. Maybe I'll try their laptop next or something like that. But Apple goes after a certain kind of person, and it's the kind of person who appreciates things well done. And that kind of person normally is willing to pay a little bit more to get a product that's well done. It, I don't ever defend Apple's prices. Actually, in the phone and iPad area, they're, they're very competitive prices. But I always thought Apple did charge more for their things, but it's like buying a car. Like people who like BMWs and Mercedes think like, well, you know, it'll get me from point A to point B like any car, but I personally like the craftsmanship and I'm willing to pay for it. So that's the only difference. And, and again, if you look at the business model, it's just, it's staggering that more people don't learn from it because Apple says, we're not going to worry about everyone. We're going to stay true to our philosophy and sell to people who buy into our philosophy. And, and by doing that, they sell far fewer products than their competitors, but they make tons more money than their competitors. You're right. People are sort of hung up on like, well, we've got to please everyone and we're going to give them uh, 20 choices of laptops because there are a lot of different kinds of people in the world. And I think if you look at what Apple has with their two models of MacBook Pro and a MacBook Air, I don't think anyone goes away from Apple feeling like they didn't have a choice. You you pick your two basic you pick from your two basic models, you configure it as you want to, and you walk away very happy. And part of that happiness is because you're not confused. You're not looking at the 19 models, which is a literal number that uh, Dell offers, and wonder like which one I want. They all have overlapping features and designs. And again, there are probably people who think that's great, uh, and they're looking for a great value, and they find the model they like, but that's not an Apple customer. 
So Apple's happy and the other guy should be happy. Right. Well, if I'm choosing between one of 19 models, I'm going to pick one. Then I'm going to wonder for the next three years, oh, gosh, did I get the right one? And I'm going to have anxiety behind it. Ken, talk about the origin and the concept behind the, and I'm doing air quotes here, getting hit with the simple stick. I love love that story. And what I really would love for you to do is explain how all of us in our daily lives ought to be wielding a simple stick ourselves. Well, I'm not sure how pervasive it was at Apple. <clears throat> I was working with the internal graphics group for a number of years, uh, right around the time of the launch of the first iPhone. And the way my book starts is this anecdote about um, these guys coming back from a meeting and me asking them how it went. And the guy said, well, Steve hit us with the simple stick. What that meant was that Steve had looked at their work and said, well, why don't you just do it this way? Uh, And it was sort of obvious to Steve. And for some reason, it wasn't obvious to the people who did the work. They moved on. I I thought that was an interesting way to start the book because the idea of having a simple stick, that Steve was well known for his ability to simplify things. And whether it was just a small group of people I was talking to or or pervasive company-wide thing, I don't know. But the fact that, that some person would come back and say, I got hit with the simple stick, I thought was very funny because it, it really did say that this is a man well known for simplifying things. And I thought it was an interesting metaphor. I think we all experience these things. And that's part of the reason for the book as well, because it was my experience at these other companies that you'd be in meetings where, where the conversation would start to go into these complicated places or someone in the room would, would propose some complicated process, and you just want to hit them with the simple stick because it's just so obvious. And again, I think common sense played such a role in Steve Jobs' management style. A lot of it was just like, well, thank you. Someone in the room is actually being clear and, and, and not letting this thing get complicated. Whereas when I went into these other places, I'd be sitting in these rooms, very large meetings, overpopulated meetings uh, with a lot of opinions, and I used to fantasize about Steve being in the room and what he would do because he, he wouldn't put up with it because for him it would be a waste of time. We've got a lot of work to do and I don't want to be in a meeting with 20 people being distracted when we know what we've got to do and we've just got to do it. I, I really wish that there was a simple stick in those other places and that somebody in the room would have started whacking people with it, metaphorically, of course. Of course. Uh, it does take someone to stand up and, and try to restore sanity. And I wish I could say I had the, the power or the will to do that myself because I was in those meetings and I could have stood up and, and risked everyone suddenly not liking me anymore to say what was on my mind. And I think that's one of the interesting things about Steve Jobs' personality is he didn't give a hoot what you thought about him. <laughs> that wasn't what drove him. So he was perfectly willing to say what was, what's on his mind, and he didn't care if he hurt some pe- people's feelings or, or whatever happened. He was just going to tell you what he believed. And I think that kind of honesty is lacking in, the, in, these, in general business where people are, everyone's got an angle, and they're telling you what they think you need to know and all that kind of stuff. And, and then they come up with these harebrained schemes, like, I have an idea. Let's test this in, in four different countries and take an extra month. And nobody ever stands up and says... That's, as Steve might have done at some point, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. (laughs) He would say things that would put you on the defensive like that, and you'd have to defend your position. And if you didn't have some good reasons uh, to back up your point of view, that wouldn't be considered anymore. 
is a thing that happens in these other companies and tends not to happen at Apple because they have this, they put this value on simplicity. So that leads me to a next discussion point. I mean, you just said a minute ago that Steve was well known for his ability to simplify things. And you just said that Steve didn't care what you thought, uh, which in, I think gives you tremendous freedom to not have to clutter your mind with, a- with anxiety over how are people going to worry about this. And, and when you when you start to worry about those kind of things, well, then that just adds so much to it. My, we, we all need more simple in our life. We need it in our advertising and in our products and in our businesses. And I think our government could be simplified in, in how you live your life. Ken, can anyone just do this? Can you just decide, all right, I'm going to start being simple? I mean, or is it, is it, a, is it a skill? I mean, is, is, I mean, is there is there a way just to say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna now have a new mindset where I'm gonna be focusing on simplicity and I'm gonna start hitting things with simple sticks. I mean, you can't do it halfway. It has to go down to your. It has to permeate to your core. I mean, I guess my question is, is is this something that we all can do? I mean, is, and how do you do that? Yeah. Well, that is the big question, and I think we've all probably experienced in our lives. Um, I know I have, like I would move to a new city and think like, you know what, or you know, new job. Say I moved from New York to Los Angeles and I'm working in a new agency and nobody knows me there. And I could actually be a better person now. I can change in ways I couldn't have changed in the old agency. Because if I, if I, if I suddenly start acting some way, they'd, they'd say that's not you and they'd laugh it off and that would be the end of it. So I thought, you know, there were times where I'd move to another city and think like, hey, I could build a whole new me here. <laughs> but unfortunately, the way people... Are, that's that's tough to do. You you know that lasts about a week, and then you're your old self again, because to a large extent we are who we are. So I, I think it's a little different with simplicity, though, because and that's again why I wrote the book. I think if you sort of train yourself to understand, you know what happens, you can defend against them a little bit better. So when you're in the room and, and it starts to go in a certain direction, you don't have to be a jerk. You can you can make your point nicely that I think this might not be a great way to go and you know what the heck use Apple as an example because that's always a good one in fact by the way a little side note I think Apple was used as an example in probably about 80 percent of the meetings I was ever in inside Dell or Intel it's just a point of reference and every marketing person uses it at some point in the course of a meeting so I think there is value in, in citing Apple's example and saying, you know, I think it's going to make it more complicated. Actually, I remember one particular meeting at Intel, I'm a little stream of consciousness here, but there was an assemblage of all the agencies that worked for Intel, and there were like 30 of them, of them or some ridiculous number, but there were people who did collateral and web and this and that. And the person who was the head of this whole group inside Intel stood up and said, now, there's going to be an Apple launch next week. I think it was the new iMac coming out. And she said specifically, everyone in the room should look at exactly what Apple does because nobody does it as well. That Steve is going to get up on stage and he's going to reveal this thing. And when, he, when people leave the auditorium, all the posters on the street, the bus shelters and things in San Francisco are all going to suddenly have this poster that that is exactly what Steve just shared in that meeting. And when you click on apple.com, it's going to have the, the, the same graphics and the same message you know, done differently, but, but it's all part of the beautifully integrated thing. And when you go to the Apple store, 
it's all going to be laid out in there. Like it's just suddenly all revealed and everything works together in this beautiful integration. And she said, that's what we got to do. And, and of course, I'm thinking like, well, you've got 30 different agencies here. How are you going to do that? You know, it's like Apple gives this example to everyone, but no one seems to learn from it. Did I go off on a tangent and not answer your, your original question? I don't remember. Well, that's a hard question, and, and I don't know that that we'll, we we can get the answer on that. But let me let me ask it in a in a in a different way. Uh, I mean, do you believe, Ken, that simplicity is an art is an art form? I mean, I don't, and I'm not necessarily talking about a sleek design behind an iPhone. I'm talking more about the act of stripping away all that is unessential and leaving what is essential. I mean, do you think that's art? I suppose you could call it art. It's art, it's skill, it's determination, I suppose. There's a quote in my book I use from Steve, which always stuck with me about uh, what Apple does is peel away the layers of the onion that, to get to the essence of something that, that Apple would create a product, another company would create a product. The other company might say, hey, that's pretty good and ship it. But at Apple, that's the very beginning of the process. Well, not the very beginning, because coming up with that idea is the beginning. But when they, when they do get it into a working design, that's when they really attack it and start peeling away these layers and make it better and better and better, simpler. Um, and again, simple doesn't mean dumbed down. It just means advanced features made easier to use. And Apple has this incredible knack for doing that. And I think they have a process, just as these other companies create processes that they will that they think are helping them when in fact they're making things more complicated. Apple has processes as well, obviously, and their process is design the thing, make it beautiful, and then do this, go through this process of peeling away the layers and having uh, meeting after meeting where that's what they do. They, they come up with ways to do that. I was in a, um, and, and as you said, it's, it's not just the product, it's everything they do. I was behind the scenes a couple of times when they were putting together the Macworld show for Steve, and this was like before they even showed the demos to Steve, the product managers were, were each working on their own demo for their products, um, and then they would share that with Steve, and those would be the things that he would do on stage. It's not like Steve did all that stuff himself. He, he directed everyone to create these little mini-shows, and then he would take them over and, and perform them on stage. But these guys would get together first in a group, and they would each do their little presentation, and then the, the whole group served as an audience so say there were six of these guys in a room, it was like a panel of six people who would view each presentation one at a time and make suggestions. And, and they would say things like, well, this iPhoto demo here, you've got 12 pictures on the screen. That just makes it look too complicated. So um, Steve's probably be more comfortable if you have like four or five so you don't distract from the thing you're talking about on the interface. And, and they would sort of whittle everything down like that. And you would think that each one would know enough to do it by himself but they didn't. I mean, they did the best job they could. And it took other people looking at it saying, I think you could actually, you know, squeeze out a few more of those complicated points. And then I'd also see Steve come into the room, uh, a similar room like that, and look at a presentation and say, in, in a sort of irritated way, like, you know, you're just not making it any better. I asked you last time to do this. And he goes, and if you can't simplify this a little bit more, then I'm just not going to use this in the show. Forget it. You know, and he he'd sort of like walk out of the room abruptly. And people would be like, all right, we got to really squeeze, uh, <laughs> you know, more, more simplicity into this thing. So it was always this, this thing. And I think they did get really good at it. I think over time, it does get built into the system and uh, people are aware of the simple stick. 
and they know what their mission is, is to make these really great, sophisticated products that are easy for people to sit down and just use without a manual, basically. Well, and that's the key lesson, Ken, is that, is that it, 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 it's, a, it's a continual effort. It never ends. And, and to use a, a, a tired old cliche, I mean, yeah, it may be simple, but it certainly isn't easy. Yes, that's very, very true. And that's one of the concepts in the book about, you know, that it isn't easy being simple. In fact, there was a um, article just appeared a few months ago in uh, a UK publication, an interview with Johnny Ive, and that was the title of the article. It was something very much to that effect. It's, it's, it's hard to be simple. Um, and he was talking about the, all the work that goes into it. And, um, you know, human beings are funny that way. There are an awful lot of people who, who don't want to put that level of work into it or they think you're, you're just overthinking it and it's really good the way it is so just stop it already and sell the thing and you've got all these opinions to deal with and the great thing about Apple under Steve was that there was always Steve at the top just when you thought like well maybe I'm done with this project now he would say you're not I think we got a ways to go and it's not beautiful enough for me or it's got one button too many or uh, stuff like that you know, Steve was just this, I think, uh, guided. The simplicity thing was just built into him. And like I say, it would show up in different ways, but it seemed to be influencing his thinking in, in so many different ways. Well, Ken, I've taken up more time of yours than I, than I, than I promised. Uh, the, the book, again, is insanely simple, The Obsession That Drives Apple's Success. I, I want to thank you, Ken, for this book. And a note to my audience. Uh, the Walter Isaacson book on Steve Jobs is, is, is obviously good, but Ken's book, in my humble opinion, is the Apple story that you really, really want to read. So thank you for that, Ken. Uh, before I let you go, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about your work, and where can they get their hands on this book? Well, there's always KenSiegel.com. That's Siegel with two L's, S-E-G-A-L-L. <clears throat> and that's sort of the portal into my little world, so you can see, um, you know, I, I, I go out and I do talks and there's ways to get in touch with me there and, and my blog which is the main attraction be so bold as to call it that I, I have a fun time talking about um, technology and marketing there and invite people's comments um, and the book is pretty much available well there's a page on the book there as well with ordering information but you can get it pretty much anywhere they sell books these days Amazon Barnes and Noble etc um, and I also should put in one other little plug while I'm here it's a, it's a side of me that uh, not a lot of people know about, but you know, maybe it diminishes my credibility completely, but I, I always have fun pointing it out. I also run a little site called scoopertino.com, and uh, that's S-C-O-O-P-E-R-T-I-N-O. It's a fake, it's a satire site, but we, what we do is we sort of created this world in which Apple's values have sort of gone amok. Um, we listen to all the criticism out there that Steve Jobs wanted to control the world and Apple's just too rich and all that kind of stuff. So we sort of make up new products and new stories about um, Apple's evil ways. But, it, I mean, it's very tongue-in-cheek. And, um, and it's not always about Apple being evil. There's all kinds of things in there. We did uh, some stories that we get like 60,000 people in a single day when we did a story about Apple water, what it would look like if Apple sold water and <laughs> discussion of it. And some of these things go viral and they go, we, we actually out-tweeted Wimbledon um, last year with a story about Sean Connery being really mad at Steve Jobs years ago and sending a nasty letter to him. It's kind of a weird, out of left field kind of article, but it really caught on and everybody thought it was true. <laughs> it was just a joke. Um, anyway, so we have a lot of fun. When we were at the ad agency, 
sitting around doing all this stuff. It was fun. We were a fun bunch of people, and Steve Jobs had a great sense of humor, and he loved this kind of thing. So we thought, what the heck? So one of my former Apple partners and myself created the site called Scupertino, and we just have a lot of fun there. So if you're in the mood for a laugh, go over there. And if you want to talk about technology and marketing, KenSiegel.com. All right. Outstanding. I will be sure to link to Scupertino in the show notes, Ken. Ken Siegel, thank you so much for making time. It was a real pleasure to spend some time with you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on the show. All right. Well, on behalf of today's guest, Ken Siegel, I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Radio. Mm-hmm.